2: You can run a dedicated box at home. You can run it in the cloud. A lot of people won't be comfortable with doing that, and they will want to join staking pools or delegate their stake to a staking provider. The ETH1 chain with Proof-of-Work lives on until we get to phase 1.5 of ETH2, which is where we merge ETH1 and ETH2. That could be 18 months, two years away. So a lot can happen in that time. This episode is brought to you by Crypto.com, Bitstamp and Nexo.io.
1: Hello, everyone. You're listening to Developer Perspectives, Ethereum 2.0 from Coindesk Podcasts. I'm Christine Kim, a Coindesk Research Analyst. And in this series, we'll be discussing the hotly anticipated Ethereum 2.0 upgrade. We'll speak with the folks inside the Ethereum developer community and take a look behind the scenes at what comes next. For this episode, we're going to be talking about the validator dynamics of Ethereum 2.0. For today's show, I'm joined by two folks from Ethereum Venture Capital Studio, Consensus. We have Ben Edgington and Vijay McCallick. Ben is the product owner of Teku, the enterprise-grade Ethereum 2.0 client at Consensus. VJ is a strategist for the engineering team behind Teku, formerly called Pegasus, now called Consensus Quorum. It's great to have you on the show, Ben and Vijay.
2: Thanks, Christine. Good to be here. Cheers, likewise.
1: On the last episode, we talked about the staking dynamics of Ethereum 2.0. And in this episode, I want to get into the specifics of what actually happens after you stake. So after you put up your 32 ETH to earn rewards on the network, what do you actually have to do as a validator? Ben, can you give our listeners a brief rundown of the main responsibilities of an Ethereum 2.0 validator?
2: There are indeed responsibilities that come with the stake. You can't just stake and leave it. So you need to run what we call a a client, a validator software, and that comprises a beacon node, which runs the Ethereum 2.0 beacon chain, and a validator client, which manages your keys and your, and your signing. And you'll also need access to an Ethereum 1 node, which might be remote, it might be Infura, or you might prefer to run that locally. And basically, you just need to keep them up and running. So upgrade when the client is upgraded, make sure that you're, uh, wherever you're hosting it, it doesn't fall over. Just keep it running and it will look after itself. So monitor it from time to time. You can sign up to alerting services, which will tell you if uh, your validator isn't doing its job. Keep it going and you will earn staking rewards over time.
1: Huh? I didn't know you had to run an Ethereum 1 node on top of the Ethereum 2 software that you had just mentioned. Why is it that you have to run an Ethereum 1 node?
2: Yeah, this is all about onboarding new validators. So. When people put a stake into the Ethereum 1 deposit contract, the Ethereum 2 chain needs to be able to see that in order to onboard new validators. And uh, it's important to be able to do that for the, for the protocol. We want the number of validators to grow. So all the validators check that each uh, other is onboarding new validators correctly. So it's very difficult to exclude new validators. Uh, that's why we need to see the ETH1 node.
1: Mm, gotcha. Vijay, anything to add there on the important attributes of validating on Ethereum 2.0 that you think listeners should know?
3: So I think, I think on top of what Ben said, you know, I think there's there's kind of this requirement to set up your infrastructure in a stable and secure way. There are penalties, uh, slashing penalties for, for your validator, your validator making invalid att- attestations. And there are also penalties for going offline
1: yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned the penalties because I do want to talk a little bit on this podcast about what you need to do successfully so that you don't get your rewards penalized or slashed and Ben, you had mentioned you know you just got to keep it running. VJ, in terms of all that software that Ben had been talking about, can you give an overview of what ethereum 2.0 validator clients will actually be available for users at launch and their main differences? Is there any difference in, you know, is one perhaps more suitable for running on your laptop versus running on a gaming computer versus a different kind of hardware?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So um, us at the uh, protocol engineering team at ConsenSys, we work alongside the Prismatic Labs team, uh, Sigma Prime, Status, ChainSafe, and the EF, building the various different clients that are going to run on ETH2. I think you know, that there are, there are some minor differences at this stage because we're really quite early on in the implementing the ETH2 spec for phase zero, but I think there are some differences in vision. So I think from, from the status, uh, the Nimbus client is definitely focused on trying to build a client for a, a low footprint system. So they're building for embedded systems such as mobile devices and potentially IoT in the future. Prismatic Labs and Sigma Prime have clearly swept up the, uh, the kind of enthusiast community and they've got pretty great um, community activities going on as well. At the Consensus Protocol Engineering team, we're trying to lean into our specialization, which is really building the enterprise grade, a high security, high stability infrastructure that we know that is going to be required to kind of maintain this uh, community and of enable the ecosystem to onboard the volume of Ether that's required to launch the Beacon chain.
1: Yeah, speaking of TEKU being enterprise grade, I was curious to know the technicalities of how TEKU is more geared for enterprises and institutions in a way that other Ethereum 2.0 clients aren't. Uh, ben, could you talk about some of the aspects built into the software? that makes it better suited for enterprises, but perhaps less accessible for individual users?
2: In essence, all the clients do the same thing. So I, I, w- I wouldn't like to say that the other clients aren't suitable, but I think what it is with TechU is it's the uh, experience and the context. In consensus, we've been supporting Besu uh, in a lot of enterprises. We have that experience. JP Morgan has trusted us with Quorum recently. And um, we know that environment very well, and it's the same people who built our Besu enterprise ETH one client who are building Teku. So all of that experience and that insight into institutional, professional, enterprise blockchain use is coming to bear on Teku. So our licensing is is very liberal. We we use the Apache two license, so it's very easy for enterprise to adopt. Um, We're using Java. There are more Java programmers in the world, certainly in enterprise, than there are in pretty much any other language. So it's, again, a very safe option for uh, enterprise users to adopt. And the team has just experienced that context uh, of deploying into enterprise environments, of the security requirements, of the monitoring of the uh, dashboard, all the resilience and everything else that comes with running a professional staking operation.
1: We've talked a little bit about the different Ethereum 2.0 software that's available for people to get up and ready to be a validator. I do want to spend a little bit of time touching on the hardware aspect also of this conversation. I know that on Ethereum mining right now, you need to have a dedicated machine that is consuming a lot of electricity, but from your two's understanding of validator, being a validator on Ethereum 2.0, what would you recommend as the hardware to start off with? And is it really something that you could be running in the background of your desktop computer, say?
2: So important to know you've got to be up and running 24 by 7. So you probably don't want to do this on your laptop if you're going to close it overnight or, you know, take it out and about with you. So you need dedicated infrastructure. And you've got a number of options. One is to do what I'm doing, which is to to run a dedicated box at home. And I've got a six-core i5, which is using currently on, on the Madasha testnet about half of a processor. So, you know, it, it's very lightweight currently in terms of processor usage. Others are running on Raspberry Pis and so forth. So in its current state, it is not too demanding. You can run it uh, on an AWS instance or other Vps uh, in the cloud and requirements are well below four gigabytes of of RAM so you can use relatively cheap cloud instances uh, to to run a lot of people won't be comfortable with doing that uh, themselves and they will will want to join staking pools or delegate their stake to a staking provider like codify staking that the consensus is putting together so And that's really a third party company, which will take care of everything for you. So that's also an option, though I do want to encourage people to run at home or in the cloud as individuals as much as possible. It's good for the network.
1: And even for testing, I'm sure that people who are interested, who might turn to staking pools, we're thinking of turning to staking pools once Ethereum 2.0 launches, could get a taste of what it actually feels like to validate themselves uh, on the test network now. VJ, you had mentioned in a prior email conversation with me that there were some interesting movements by legacy financial and banking institutions into validating. Can you elaborate on some of those movements?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think you know a bunch of the activity by sort of mainstream legacy financial institutions from sort of outside the crypto space is uh, a little bit more under the radar. I'm not sure there have been any major public announcements, but certainly. The institutions who've been very active in crypto for the past kind of four or five years or more have been angling up towards ETH2. So we have the major exchanges, some of the custodians who've taken over large swathes of the crypto asset um, custody. And, and then there are kind of dedicated staking pools and in institutional staking as a service providers under which Consensus's own Consensus codifies staking service Sits as well. I think what's what's most interesting is to kind of see how um, a lot of the ether that is kind of out there in the ecosystem, uh, being you know held and stored by by these kind of major players such as Coinbase, Binance, and Kraken, is is going to be put to work, being staked on ETH two as that launches.
1: And to that point, one follow up question, Vijay, is custodying the thirty two ETH that is required to be an Ethereum 2.0 validator. Are there requirements for custodying that eth any different on Ethereum 2.0 than the current Ethereum network now? Are there important aspects about keeping your rewards and keeping your coins safe in the new Ethereum 2.0 environment?
3: The ether that's currently held by custodians is probably going to um, need to be managed in different ways to interact with the different types of staking providers so. You need to have your your ETH stake live and connected to the network to validate and to get your rewards. So it can't sort of sit in cold storage for that. Uh, and there are a bunch of specific security requirements that have to be solved for that to work. I don't know, Ben, if you want to add more on top of that.
2: Yeah. So when you stake your ETH, it's basically a one-way street for now. You put it in the deposit contract and it's effectively burnt. You 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 can't get it back. And In return, you you have two keys. You have a signing key, which has to be online, and the validator uses that constantly to sign transactions and blocks. And you have a withdrawal key. Now, the withdrawal key is the important one because that will allow you in future to reclaim your stake when you exit from the system. So if you want to delegate your staking to a third-party service, they can have the validator key and they can do all the work of signing the the attestations and the blocks um, but they cannot access your your ether only you can do that because you hold the withdrawal key so that's a non-custodial way of of staking hey listeners crypto.com offers one of the most convenient ways to purchase your favorite tokens or cryptocurrencies It's also one of the most cost-effective ways, with the normal 3.5% credit card fee waived for all crypto purchases. What's more, with Crypto.com's MCO Visa card, you can
3: get up to 10% back on things like food and grocery shopping. When you buy gift cards with the Crypto.com app, you can get up to 20% back. So download the Crypto.com app today
2: and enjoy these offers until the end of September.
0: Bitstamp is the original global cryptocurrency exchange.
1: It's not just a new system of block creation and transaction validation, but this new key system and key management, I think, is a whole new area of interest for me and I'm sure for people who are following up on Ethereum 2.0 development. So thank you for, for explaining a little bit on that. Um, given the kind of whole new system for custodying ETH, but also for validating, um, creating new blocks on the new system, Vijay, do you that a lot of Ethereum miners today, that segment of the Ethereum ecosystem, will want to become Ethereum 2.0 validators once the new network launches. You had talked a bit about the movements for legacy financial and banking crypto institutions, but I'm curious to know also your thoughts on what you think the Ethereum miners are going to do once phase zero launch rolls around.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I think there are a few kind of different directions I can see things moving in. So obviously there is all of this legacy mining hardware which will so one, uh, there'll be, you know, a continuation of the Eth1 chain for at least a substantial period of time, but also, you know, there may be certain miners who choose to move to other chains that they can uh, address with their hardware setup. But I certainly think that people who have you know, large volumes of ETH will be incentivized to go and stake, whether that be through some of these staking providers and some of the people who are building, you know, dedicated institutional staking services. But certainly people who've built up competency around running you know, that critical infrastructure at scale will will have some know-how in-house to, to develop their own uh, staking setups. It will make sense for them to do that.
1: Ben, would you agree with that? Do you think that a lot of the Ethereum miners who have legacy hardware lying around will either move to other proof-of-work chains or if they've got the 32 Ether and are making quite a bit of ETH, repurpose that for Ethereum
2: 2.0. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see. Um, so the ETH1 chain with proof-of-work lives on until we get to phase 1.5 of ETH2, which is where we merge ETH1 and ETH2 that could be 18 months, two years away. So a lot can happen in that time. Um, it will be very interesting to to see how it plays out. We are not reliant on current ETH1 miners joining in ETH2, but I'd love to see it happen. But yeah, difficult to predict.
1: Another question that's a bit more technical for you, Ben, what was the starting number for the minimum pool of validators to actually launch Ethereum 2.0. Can you give us the number of how many validators are required to actually be up and running uh, for us to see Ethereum 2.0 go live?
2: It is (laughs) 16,384, which is about half a million ETH staked. Currently, we have on the Medasha Testnet, last time I checked, it was about 30,000 validators with a two-week queue to join. Um, that, of course, is using just Testnet Ether, so it's easy to spin up you know, a lot of validators. But uh, interest seems very high, and I don't expect we'll have any trouble reaching that number.
1: Hmm. No, no expectations for trouble reaching that number. Vijay, how quickly do you expect that number to start growing in the later phases of development after phase zero? And what do you think are going to be the primary developments on the network that people need to see to actually say, all right, I want to get in on this. I want to start helping the Ethereum 2.0 network grow and, and make that 16,000 number uh, grow bigger.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think there are a few different milestones that will probably trigger a bunch more influx into ETH2. Um, So first off, I think this is kind of a a relatively high bar, it seems, to to launching ETH2. But I think once the network's been running for a reasonable length of time and people will see that kind of stability and that security maintained, then that's kind of when when a bit more ETH will filter in. But certainly the point at which you can actually withdraw and use that ETH2 staked ETH, um, I think is going to be where we see the bulk of people joining into the ETH2 network.
1: Gotcha. And is there, I know that we had just mentioned what the target number is for launch, but is there a target beyond that for kind of the status quo of the network? How many validators, developers are expecting to be on the Ethereum 2 network at all times? Ben, could you speak to that?
2: Yeah, there's no hard and fast Number, but I think the general sort of finger in the air proportion of ether staked is is around 10%. Is what we've sort of anticipated and and would like to see for a for a very strong. So, you know, 10 10 million ETH or so staked would make everybody very comfortable about the security of the network.
1: I want to talk a little bit about the experience that you guys have been having watching the Midasha test network go live. Um, obviously finding some bugs and working out various kinks. Vijay, as you've seen the Madasha network get bigger and start to work through a lot of the the different technical issues, but also perhaps social dynamics on the network, what is your biggest worry or concern now when it comes to transitioning um, to the Ethereum 2.0 network, transitioning to actually launching this pretty Pretty complex piece of software.
3: I think there are a few kind of things to watch out for as we move into the the main uh, Ethereum to launch, which is um, one kind of how those kind of larger institutions running larger bulks of validators think about uh, working towards resolving the anti-correlation incentives that are built into the protocol. So there there are kind of anti-correlation incentives for like numbers of validators going offline, um, which are kind of designed to to kind of limit the the size and scope and sort of increase the resilience of the network. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how the sort of major staking providers and people running large numbers of validators kind of build their infrastructure to be, you know, multi-client, multi-cloud, multi-region. Uh, in order to compensate for that,
1: Ben, do you have a similar concern to VJ's, or is yours something different? As you've watched the Madasha test network evolve and, and grow,
2: yeah, I think one of the very interesting lessons from Madasha is around client diversity. So VJ touched on this, and it's an important takeaway. So we had some trouble about three weeks ago because one of the clients, the leading client on the network, that had eighty percent of the the validators had, had an issue and, and went down, effectively became unavailable, and it had a big impact on the network. Now, the network carried on with 20% of the validators participating, but it was heavily degraded and clients began to struggle. And we, we recovered that. But it's hard if one client has a, a huge proportion of the network. It's much healthier if there are say four clients each with less than 30% of the network then if one client has an issue the rest will carry on and we'll, and will barely even notice so i'd like to see a move away from dominance of, of one client over the others um and that would be uh, very good you know we'd like to do our bit by installing a lot of techu in the in the institutional staking market and we're not expecting to get a huge amount of traction in the sort of individual staker market, though I'd love to see it, but that can redress the balance uh, somewhat.
1: Mm -hmm. What is the percentage of uh, validators on Madasha running the Teku client right now?
2: It's hard to say. Um, There aren't good metrics uh, uh, available but it's probably in the, in the 10 uh, ten to 20% area. But uh, by the very nature of these distributed networks, it's very, uh, very hard to tell.
1: Right, right. Vijay, to that point, I'm curious to know, you've been working very heavily, and uh, I'm sure on the Teku client, but are there any other tools that you've noticed that will help? either users who want to become validated on the Ethereum 2.0 network or people who are just curious to be able to track the activity that's going on the Ethereum 2.0 network better. Can you highlight a, a set of tools or products that have either come out from ConsenSys or, um, or other Ethereum startups that um, might help people understand and view the Ethereum 2.0 blockchain once it launches?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So our, our own inferior team is building an ETH2 API, which is uh, built on Teku. It's kind of exciting to see out there sort of increasing the, you know, the number of, of different APIs you have access to there for different types of projects and products that'll eventually be built on ETH2. But sort of, you're also starting to see some of the, the old kind of infrastructure built for viewing and monitoring the, you know, the Ethereum one chain ported over to ETH2 and sort of seeing their second iterations. So uh, certainly things like, you know, ETH2 stats amongst others are are kind of interesting to look at. But I think sort of to Ben's point, a lot of the, the nuance around how the clients kind of report to and interact with some of those services are still being worked out. So you're seeing a few kind of glitches and bugs as is, all of which we hope to have completely ironed out by the launch of the ETH2 mainnet. There's also the, the ETH2 launchpad, so that's kind of the, the onboarding flow that the EF and Consensus collaborated on to, to help uh, onboard people to ETH2 and sort of getting their validator up and running.
1: All this talk of, of launching makes me curious. How close are we to actually seeing Ethereum 2.0 go live, Ben?
2: So close, so close. We are determined to uh, launch this year, this calendar year. So I wrote an op-ed for Coindesk uh, in the new year and I said we're going to launch this year and I, I stand by that. The client teams are all highly motivated to, to do so and we've pretty much got all the rocks in, in place. So we, we're not going to launch if there's any risk. We're only going to do it if you know we're confident that it's, it's not going to be um, a disaster, uh, obviously. But yeah, we feel the pressure and uh, definitely want to get it done.
1: And my final question is actually a question about your guys' experience so far, being a part of the community of developers and community of people interested in Ethereum 2.0. It's been a niche community up until very recently, since it's gotten big and kind of gotten to be something that people do realize could launch this year. Being part of the people who are building Ethereum 2.0 and getting to interact with this on a daily basis and building out this technology. What have been some of the most memorable moments for you two being part of that community and being part of this project, not just within Consensus, but perhaps broader within the Ethereum community?
3: Vijay? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think within consensus, we've, we've been working on ETH2 for a long time through its various iterations. So we've kind of had researchers like Ben uh, working since really sharding and through sort of Initial iterations of Serenity and, and working alongside the EF, I think, has been one of the most exciting things. And all of the other client teams, uh, it's definitely been an incredibly collaborative space with a lot of really kind of interesting personalities and, and incredible research contributions from a bunch of different places. So, I think you know, some of the most memorable moments for us have definitely been those kind of sessions working with the EF, making breakthroughs, and creating sort of these kind of bold new designs for, um, for ETH2 and then sort of seeing them implemented and worked out by the various client teams.
1: Any particular personalities within the EF, that you um, remember quite vividly?
3: Uh, I mean, you know, speaking from, for myself, I think the kind of custodianship of, of the ETH2 space and the client community by Danny Ryan has been pretty inspiring all of his writings and his kind of contributions to the dialogue have been incredibly valuable. It's been great to work alongside him.
1: Ben, seeing as, you know, your, your journey in developing Ethereum 2.0 might, it won't end, but it it could see the, you could see the launch of it this year. Uh, What has been your most memorable uh, memory or or perhaps moments um, so far?
2: Yeah, and this has been the most awesome thing I've done in my life. I mean, maybe it's a sad life, but it it has been a fabulous journey so far, and there's still a long way to go. The working alongside such brilliant, but just genuinely nice people, generous and uh, and kind people has been incredible from across uh, all the client teams. And uh, yeah, every day I'm challenged just by thinking through things and keeping on top of everyone's ideas and work is there's so much energy everyone is very very motivated standout highlight for me is we all gathered last september when i say all we had three or four from each client team so i think we had about eight teams there at the time in a in a set of cabins um in uh ontario and uh, by lake and we spent a week getting the clients to talk to each other for the first time and it was, it was brilliant. I mean, it, it was the best time. We got um, eight different client implementations all talking to each other on one laptop, and it was a huge success. And just spending that week with, with those teams was, uh, was wonderful. Yeah, really good experience.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Ben and Vijay, for sharing your thoughts with me on validator dynamics of Ethereum 2.0, but also a sneak peek on just what it's like to work on this Ethereum 2.0 technology. This has been another episode of Developer Perspectives Ethereum 2.0. Thank you everyone for listening. For our weekly listeners, you can find social media links to connect with Ben and Vijay for any follow-up questions from our discussion in today's show notes. Once again, I'm Christine Kim, a research analyst at Coindesk. And if you haven't already, please do check out our Ethereum 2.0 explainer report, which is available now and free to download on the Coindesk website. The report features additional commentary from Ethereum developers and cool visualizations further explaining the dynamics of the Ethereum 2.0 network. You can stay up to date with the Coindesk research team and be the first to hear about our new reports, webinars, and definitely new podcast episodes on Twitter by following at CoindeskData. Thank you everyone for listening. Talk to you guys next time.